0: The scripture reading for today is Genesis 3 1 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, You may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths This is the word of the Lord. Thanks
1: be to God. Uh, before you sit down, can you turn around and greet one another by saying good to see you and also remind each other you are loved, you are created in God's image. Yes, you are an image-bearer. Good to see you all. Okay, you may be seated. We are going through a sermon series called The Image of God from Genesis. Um, And as I am studying uh, the text, the Bible, and thinking and learning, and also conversing with you... And thank you to all those who um, commented, gave me feedback, and asked questions. Because um, this is this is what it means to be church—to pursue Christ together, to grow together. I'm a, as I wrote in my pastoral column, I'm first a student of God's word. I'm a disciple too, fundamentally, alongside you. Uh, before i 'm a teacher, and so uh, before I teach god 's word, before I preach, uh, I need to learn I need to grow, I need to be sanctified and strengthened by god 's word and so and part of the process is for me to learn with you and and from you. Uh, one conversation that I really appreciated after last week 's message on gender and sexuality, which comes with a lot of baggage actually, if you think about it, a lot of historical baggage and I I wanna make a couple of comments before I dive into today's message on the biblical men and womanhood. Because of the historical context in which we live, and because we also have a historical baggage as a church, in terms of how the church has responded, uh, we tend to like or lean towards or gravitate towards one extreme or the other. One extreme is like you just kinda bash everybody, everybody that you don't agree with, or the, the other extreme is you kind of just go with the flow. Um, neither is the right way or the healthy way. But I do want to acknowledge first, with a word of apology, on behalf of church leadership, and you know I being one of the leaders of this church, but thinking about the capital C Church, A word of apology to those who have been hurt by the church, those who have been hurt and disappointed by the church regarding how the church has responded to this topic on gender and sexuality. Um, Anglican Church of North America uh, recently, last year, had a pastoral statement regarding sexuality and identity, and I included that in the pastoral column. Uh, And please check it out. I read through the whole document. Share with my pastoral team, the campus pastors, Pastor Jason, Uh, beginning of the year, or was it last year, and um, I found it it to be very helpful. And part of the statement says this, indeed, we recognize that same-sex sexual relationships have been an often targeted sin, while other sinful manifestations of our common fallen nature, such as pornography, Adultery, divorce, greed, yes, greed, and disregard for the poor have sometimes been tragically discounted or even ignored. If you felt like the church has been singling out this sin of homosexuality, when those who call it a sin is full of greed and malice, hypocrisy, we as a church must acknowledge that that is wrong. Yeah. And I'm guilty of one myself as well. Second of all, I do want to have a short preliminary word of invitation to those who are hurting those who are hurting or struggling with gender dysphoria or same sex attraction. Gender dysphoria is a new word. Um, some of you don't really know. Um, when I mentioned that word, some of you are like, What do you mean by gender dysphoria? So, gender dysphoria is an experience of feeling that you don't match your physiological gender. Basically, you feel like you're in a wrong body. Tim Keller wisely says this, and this is a pastoral response that I think is very rooted in God's character and God's heart, and we need to reflect that as we approach this topic. And he writes this, to experience gender dysphoria is extremely painful. To have your feelings sharply out of accord with your body is a life-dominating grief and as Christians we of all people should be able to show understanding and compassion knowing the devastating effect of the fall so let me share this i don't personally experience gender dysphoria i've never experienced it myself but do you know that Jesus experienced dysphoria? Jesus experienced dysphoria. Not gender dysphoria, but Jesus experienced dysphoria, meaning he experienced what it means to be in the wrong body. He's God, but he who knew no sin became sin. Sin. He became a human flesh. He experienced the ultimate experience of being in a wrong flesh. That's incarnation. That's crucifixion. And there is no greater dysphoria that's ever experienced in human history. And Christians believe that Jesus, who made you, went through all that for you. That's the good news. That's the gospel that we believe in. That's the gospel that we preach. Gospel is for everybody. Those with dysphoria, without dysphoria, those who are homosexuals, those who are heterosexuals, those who are confused. So my invitation is to come to Jesus. I have a longer statement from Anglican Church's pastoral document. Um, but today's topic, um, I had to dwindle down five times to make it shorter because um, I tend to go long, right? So I'm not gonna read it, so please check out the Anglican um, Church in North America, The Pastoral Statement of Sexuality and Gender, and you will learn how we are to engage in this Conversation. So, church, if you're a Christian, if you're part of this church, we have a work cut out for us. Um, The world is groaning. I mean, we ourselves are groaning, but the world is aching with pain, with suffering, the whole creation. And uh, we need to look at the world not simply as, you know, you sinners, but as fellow sufferers who have been marred by sin, like all of us in this room, and look at them as a sufferer rather than just a sinner. Look at each other as first saints and then sufferers and sinners in this church. Um, I share this again in the pastoral column because not everybody reads that. I'm gonna just mention this. Recently I came across this quote, if you are unwilling to offend anybody you are not fit for ministry and if you are eager to offend anybody you are not fit for ministry i like that we got we got to strike the balance if you're not if we as people of the truth are not willing to offend i mean Again, we cannot be eager to offend, but basically what that that statement, the first statement is saying is we can't be cowards. We need to be grounded and rooted and stand firm in the truth. But even as we do that, we cannot be eager to simply offend people. Yes, gospel will eventually because basically the gospel says, you are not God, God is God, repent and believe Jesus. That could come across pretty offensive but we shouldn't be eager to offend people. We need to be rooted in our truth, two feet firmly rooted and grounded, but our hearts, our hands must be open. We can't do this all the time. We got to do this as a church. Speak the truth in love, willing to listen first before we speak, and I'm I'm learning that myself uh, in my life. And we, as a church, need to do that, especially when it comes to controversial topics, because people have stories, and we need to listen to stories, their stories. And that's what I encourage members who come to me uh, with friends or family members or colleagues who um, are transgender or bisexual or um, homosexual. Like, how do I? Do? Like, I'm invited to a gay wedding or whatever. Like, what do I do? I said, you know what? What you need to do, you need to love him or her, and first get to know them. Know their story before you judge. Just love them. And the first step is to listen. That was rather a long preliminary. Uh, So today's topic, as we are going through the sermon series on image of God, is on manhood and womanhood. And each sermon, I find, needs its own sermon series. I mean, this is a big topic, but today I want to focus on the the relational dynamic between men and the women. I'm not going to be talking about the roles, per se, uh, or character traits, per se. I want to talk about the relational dynamic as God has originally designed. It's about the design of God. As I shared last Sunday, one theologian notes that confusion over the meaning of sexual personhood is epidemic. The consequence is more divorce, more homosexuality, more sexual abuse, more promiscuity, more sexual awkwardness, and more emotional distress and suicide that come with the loss of God-given identity. We're not just human beings, we are sexual beings. So we need to understand what it means to be men, what it means to be women. So outline for today, again, the movement of men and women in creation, men and women in the fall, men and women in restoration. I'm gonna sp- spend bulk of my time this morning on the fall aspect, the passage that we just read, and the passage that will follow what we just read. Um, I'm not gonna be able to spend too much time on this uh, first part on the the creational design, but I will have to say a couple things so that it kind of lays the groundwork, the foundation. Men and women in creation. A couple points that I want to share is what we see in God's original design for men and women is that there is equality between men and women, and then there's male headship woman is created to be fit or helper fit or corresponding to men. So there's a male-female equality and male headship. When some of you sitting here or listening at home, when you hear that word male headship, immediately it's a red flag for some of you. Immediately you your cringing, your frowning male headship, and for many good reasons, especially for those of you who have had a bad experience of men, whether it's from your father in your family, your husband, or your boss at work, or church leader who was a male. Just a bad male leadership so whenever you hear this word male headship, you go like, what? Okay, I'm, I'm shutting down today. Today, I'm not going to listen to you, but, but hear me out. I chose that phrase intentionally. Actually, there were a couple people who said, don't use that. <laughs> and uh, I actually put some thoughts, prayed. I chose this term, male headship, not because I want to, I'm forced to because it's in the Bible. For instance, Ephesians 5.23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife. Did you hear that? And some of you women like, I don't like that. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. I can't avoid it we just cannot avoid it. It's ingrained in God's creation. It's ingrained in God's restoration. What we need to do is to clarify and refine what it means to be head. We need to clarify what it means to be the head and fill it with the right meaning, because the headship has been filled with so much junk. And I'm, I'm, I'm confessing, like, including myself, in my exercise of male headship, that we just don't like it. But let's face it, we cannot throw the baby with bathwater. And that's what I'm going to be trying to do this morning. Like, What does it mean to have male headship? In God's design but then it's so devastatingly ruined in the fall and what does it mean to be restored so uh, Genesis 2 I was going to spend some time looking at the original design but no time for that so I'm going to focus more on Genesis 3 but just a summary version of Genesis 1 and 2 we see both the beautiful equality and beautiful distinction in a male and female relationship there's a equality between male and female in terms of dignity and worth and value, and yet there is distinction between man and woman in terms of man being the head, woman being the helper. That's in the design. And man being the head, woman being the helper, has nothing to do with superiority or inferiority. Being a helper, does not connote inferiority. It denotes actually honor and dignity because God Himself describes Himself as, I'm your helper. So the 22 times that the word is used in the Hebrew, in the, in, in the Old Testament, 16 times it is used to refer to God. So it has nothing to do with inferiority. Nothing. In fact, you come to the New Testament, who's called the helper? Holy Spirit is called the helper. Equal with God, the Father and the Son, but of course there's this economic relationship within the Trinity where the Son submits to the Father. The Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. So there's an order in the within God himself. It's part of our DNA. We're just, and we are creating God's image. We cannot help it. It's not denigrating. It's not putting woman down to see what's in the Bible in chapter two of Genesis that woman is created as a helper fit or suitable for men. One wise sister this week, as I was trying to understand or try to understand woman's perspective, on this topic, said this, I do think one thing is clear. Women are helpers. Now, this is coming from women, okay? Singles and spouses, women are helpers. And there are certain traits that come as a helper. And God clearly recognized who needed woman's help. We all need help. It just happened that one gender needed it first. Okay. Now, when it comes to male headship, again, some of you have problem just with this male headship, most likely because of your experience, bad experience of male leadership. Others of you don't have an issue because you don't have bad experience with men. You actually had a good father, you have a good husband, you've had good male bosses, your church leadership experience who were men were quite positive, you have no issue. But that's not everybody's experience. So let me just clarify, just to clear the ground, uh, before we looked at the fall uh, of men and women and the relational messiness there, the distinction between male headship and male dominance it's a working definition so on the one hand male headship is a good thing and is a part of god's original good design so you can define male headship as this if you're jotting down notes in the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings that is men and women the men Bears primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. That, that's mouthful. Let me repeat that. This is what this is the working definition of male headship. In the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, equality, men and woman, the man. Bears the primary responsibility. That's the key word. The primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God glorifying direction. Again, the key phrase is primary responsibility. Not the only responsibility. Man and woman, each of them has responsibility, but man as the head bears the burden of the primary responsibility. It has nothing to do with male privilege. It has everything to do with male responsibility. But I chose not to use that word responsibility because it's part of the headship. At the heart of it, actually. But I want to us to come to the text, come to the Bible with openness. I mean, even this, this morning, I was thinking like Sam Peel leading worship and Rachel, his husband, I mean, sorry, his wife, Rachel <laughs> Rachel, Rachel um, singing alongside with beautiful harmony. That, that's, that's, that's what it means to lead and, and serve and help and receive together. There's a picture of Uh, a, a speed skating pair man leading the woman in partnership in this beautiful and glorious direction it's man giving up his seat for a woman in the bus or train looking out for the honor and well being of women responsibility not privilege but in our fallenness male headship has been experienced more as male domination, male abusing his power. So male domination is a bad thing. Male headship is a good thing. Male domination is a bad thing. It's not part of God's original creation design. So you can define male domination this way. Working definition. Assertion of man's will over woman's will disregarding her spiritual equality, her rights, and her value. Now, that's male domination. Not male headship. Male domination is an assertion of man's will over woman's will disregarding her equality, disregarding her rights, disregarding her value, and the world is rampant with male domination. The history is littered with male domination. One female author this week I I read wrote this. Upon the female body are found the scars of colonialism and domination. The patriarchal domination has scarred bodies and bodies of women. It's using authority and leadership for oneself instead of serving others. It's a use of authority without responsibility. And it is regrettable that that's our experience in many ways in this brokenness and it has left an indelible mark in some of your souls and many of our sisters' souls and we grieve we grieve we lament this week as I was preparing for this I had to stop and pray and just lament but again we to be careful not to throw the baby with bathwater. The problem is not in the leadership per se. The problem is in the bad leadership. The problem is not authority. problem is the bad authority or bad exercise of authority. problem is not the headship. problem is bad headship. And the reason is the fall, the, the sin that just corrupts the beautiful and good design of God. That's why we have to come to Genesis 3. One theologian says this, Genesis 3 is the crucial chapter of Scripture. If it were suddenly removed from the Bible, it would no longer make sense. Life would no longer make sense. Genesis 3 and onward gives answer to why life is so painful now And it also gives us hope of restoration. So I'm gonna spend the next 20 minutes plus looking at the fall, the effect of the fall. So what happened in the in the fall? That's what we heard it read just now. Genesis 3, 1 to 5. I'm gonna reread it. But I'm gonna I'm gonna insert some words, not to change the meaning, but to open the meaning up to you. Because in English, you can't really it's hard to see. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You, like in English, you is used either for singular or plural, but you there in Hebrew is clearly plural. It's, and there's only Adam and Eve in the garden, so you too, right? Did God actually say you two, two of you, you all shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, "We, not I, we," she's representing man and woman as a second in command. Right? "We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden," but God said, "You two, plural, shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you too, you all, touch it, lest you die. I'm gonna, we're going to come back to this passage and like look at the details, but today I'm not going to focus on the details. I'm just going to read it and then just look at it from the lens, you know, with the topic of man and womanhood. But the serpent said to the woman, you, plural, will not surely die. For God knows that when you, plural, you too, eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you, two of you, will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here in this text, we see how there's a conversation between the serpent, or the the devil in the form of the serpent, having a conversation with women. Um, And the question is, where is men? Huh, huh. Where is Adam? Where is the man when the woman was being deceived? Where was the man when Satan was bringing her down and defying God's command? Where was the man? That is the question. Was he working in the garden? Was he working in the garden somewhere? Was he working in the garage? Was he making some investments to make more money? For the future, was he watching sports and Netflix? Was he out there somewhere playing golf? Where was Adam? Well, what what does the text say? Do you know where he was? Where was he? He was, in fact right there beside his wife. Did you know that? Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree, the forbidden tree, was good for food and there was delight to the eye, mm, the tree was desired to make one wise, mm -hmm, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her hubby who was with her. And he ate. What? Like, seriously, you go, what? What just happened? What's going on here? He was right there beside her. What was he doing? What was he thinking? Satan's talking with his wife. The woman's fighting the battle. And she's confused. And she's been deceived. And what does he do? Nothing. He does nothing, he says nothing. That is male headship at its worst. That's failure to be the head. Failure to be responsible. Not exercising his God-given authority to protect the woman, to guard against the enemy, to fight the battle on behalf of the family and for the sake of God's name. The husband, the man, should have said, Wait, 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 wait. He should have said, wait, honey, 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 please, please. Let me speak to the serpent. you little crafty one that I know, I know this guy, I named him. I named, I remember when I was naming him, I knew he was lie. I knew he is so cunning. That's why I named him serpent. Mm, you serpent, come over here. Let me have a word with you. You have no business of questioning my wife about God and his goodness and his design. I received God's command. I am called to faithfully carry out God's command as the head of the family. You get the heck out of here. Don't you ever come back. And don't you ever, ever talk to my wife. You don't belong in this garden. Get the heck out of here. That's what he should have said. If he missed the opportunity, he should have said, wait, wait, wait. Honey, listen, don't do that. You know God is good. You don't need to question God. God gave everything in this garden, everything for us to enjoy. Don't need to listen to that crap. Come on here, honey. Let me deal with that sneaky little serpent. I'm going to kick him out of here. Don't stand my way. Let me take care of the business. That's what he should have done, right? as the man who's created in God's image to represent God, to reflect God's character, to protect the woman, to guard the temple, guard the garden. Instead, he sits silently. There's a book called Silence of Adam. Silence of Adam, and it's not a good silence. It's a passive silence. It's an irresponsible silence. It's sinful silence. It's detrimental silence. It's a silence that will eventually lead the whole humanity down the grain, down with him and his wife. And there are three things at least that's wrong in his silence. Number one, he was unfaithful to God. He is irresponsible in keeping God's command, he's disobeying God's word. This is the worst of all. He is unfaithful to his work, that's the second one. He abandoned his responsibility to being the keeper and the protector of the garden, that was his work. He becomes a passive observer, allowing the deception of the enemy to progress without decisive intervention. Thirdly, he was unfaithful to his role in his relationship to his woman. He abandons his responsibility as the head. Instead of serving as a responsible leader for women, he takes a backseat and becomes just irresponsible. And the history, we have seen so many cases like that ever since then. What is God's indictment? How does God deal with this? What is God's charge? What is God's impeachment? We're going to look at it more in detail later, but you know what? God is so gracious. I mean, the way God approaches Adam, he doesn't simply just pound him. He asks a question. Look at verse 8 and following. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his woman, or his wife, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, and said to him, Where are you? It's so interesting. Every you before this was plural, but this you is singular. Who does God look for? Who does God speak to first in Genesis 3, 9? God asks, where are you, Adam? Not, where are you, Adam and Eve? If you want to be technical, who sinned first? Eve sinned first. Practically. Fundamentally, Adam was, but practically, Eve sinned first. But God does not seek God. The woman first. God calls out the man. And that alone first. Why not both? Both men and woman are responsible. 100%. But why does God call out Adam first? And Adam only first? Why? Because of male headship. Because the man is designed and called to take on the primary responsibility as the head. The headship of men is in creation. It's not in convention. It's not just from the fall. It's in creation. Again, it's not about male privilege. That's that's a sinful way of putting headship of men. And we are all guilty of that as men. It's about responsibility. Now, us men may say, Man, that's not fair. She did it first. She got deceived by the serpent. I just- It's not, it's not my jacket that's the problem. It's not me that's the problem. Okay, thank you. Well, since I took it off, I'm just gonna take it off. I just ate. I received.
0: What could I have
1: done? I love my wife. I trust my wife. I just ate. Because she gave it to me. And that's exactly how Adam responds. And that's how many of us would respond as men. But it's very clear in the Bible that man takes the primary responsibility for the problem in the family and the church. If something goes wrong in the family and God comes to, you open the door, who would God look for first? even if it's your child who did something wrong, even if it's your wife who did something wrong, you know who God's going to look for? After the knock? The man, the husband, the father. He has the primary responsibility as the head of the house. Not the only one with the responsibility, but the one with primary responsibility. If something wrong happens in the church, to whom does God come? Not the whole congregation. You know who's going to be accountable to first? The elders and the pastors. Because the leaders have the primary responsibility, not the only responsibility. If you mess up, it's you messed up. Yes, it's your responsibility. But if you're under my leadership, I am liable. I'm accountable to God. That's a burden of leadership. That's a burden of headship. You know, First Timothy 3 talks about church leadership and says if anyone aspires to the office of eldership or pastorship, he desires a noble task. And the qualification includes being a one-woman man, a man who has one wife. It's entrusted to men. Do you know why? It's not blocking women from taking a leadership position. It's not about male privilege. It's, it's, It's about male responsibility. Do you know why? Becoming a leader in those days was risking your life. You're putting your neck on the line. If the persecution breaks out tomorrow, Who's going to get thrown into the prison first? Who's going to get their head chopped first? Who's going to get burned at the stake first? The leader. The leader goes first. Paul is saying, don't push women and children first to suffer. Come on, man. Don't do that. You, man, man up, be willing to suffer for your family. And for the church, that's what it means to be the head. It's not prohibiting women from leadership. It's about protecting the woman from harm. That is at the heart of that passage about the leadership of men. In our fallenness, however, those passages are used against women and not for women. And we distort it and abuse it and things get really messy. It's not about women sit down. It's about men stand up, please. It's hard to be a leader. It's costly to be the head. And that's why not many people want to be a leader. Not, one, not many people in and you want to be an elder. It's not popular to be an elder in our congregation, right? It's costly. And some of you young guys, you don't want to get married and just enjoy your life, because you've seen. To man up is hard. but wake up, you can't think like that. You're not designed to think like that. I've been listening to some podcasts, and why is Jordan Peterson so popular amongst young men? Because he's he's speaking, into, he's speaking directly to young men. Be responsible. That's what it means to be men. Fundamental, it's in you. You just want to have a relaxed, comfortable life. Don't, I don't want to suffer, I don't want to sacrifice. And this morning, message to me and you men is to men up, stand up, please. You know how Adam should have responded, he should have responded. Oh, Lord God, I messed up. I don't know what just happened, but I messed up. Wait, wait. I I mean, I, I know what happened. I was irresponsible. I first sinned against you, my God, by not being faithful to you and your word. I sinned against you by not being faithful to the work that you entrusted to me by keeping the garden from the enemy. I was too lazy. I was too passive. I allowed the sly and crafty serpent to... Have a way over me. I sinned against you also not by standing up to be the man of the household, by leading and protecting my wife. I failed as a leader. Lord, forgive me. Lord, help me. Lord, help me to be a better man. That's what he should have said. But how did Adam respond? Verse 11 and 12. God asks, Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man says, what? Instead of manning up, owning up his fault, his sin, he says, The woman, the woman whom you gave me, "She." In Hebrew, it's emphasized. that's why I put it in bold. "She gave me the fruit, and I ate. She." Adam shifts the blame to Eve and then to God. And we men do that often. And man, that's wrong. When it comes to the breakdown of the relational dynamic between men and woman after the fall, it's full of conflict, full of tension. And male headship gets misused, abused, and it really gravitates towards male dominance, assertion, in a very unhealthy way. Uh, and Genesis 3.16 describes it this way. So to the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children. Now in the next line, we need to unpack. Your desire, telling woman. Woman's desire shall be contrary to her husband. There's going to be this tension. and But he shall rule over you. Talking to the woman. In light of Genesis 4, 7, where it says, The sin is crouching at the door. Its desire, same word, is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Your desire shall be for your husband. Sin's desire is for you. So what does that mean? Just as sin's desire is to manipulate and control Cain woman will try to manipulate and control men. That's after the fall. And then it says, and he shall rule over you, but you must master it. There are two interpretations. One, your desire will be for your husband, but he must rule over you. And the rule here, if that's the right interpretation, is seen as an exercise of a godly rule. Leadership. God is restoring the fallen relational dynamic, reestablishing man's headship and leadership. Interpretation number two is, your desire will be for your husband, Eve. You, shall, you will want to control your husband, but he will not allow you to have your way with him. He will, not must, he will. Rule over you. And the rule here in that interpretation is seen as an exercise of an ungodly, distorted leadership. It's a male domination under which the woman will suffer and struggle instead of flourish and blossom. Whether it's interpretation number two or one, basically, as a result of the fall, the whole relational dynamic between men and women is full of tension, full of conflict, full of problem. It's miserable. It's miserable. And it's a very common experience in our marriages, in our relationships at home, church, workplace, conflict, power struggle, power abuse, divorce, bitterness, hurts, wounds, man being passive aggressive or being passive aggressive, passive aggressive, abandoning his responsibility and blaming woman, abusing his authority and abusing woman, watching pornography, treating woman like an object for his selfish pleasure, woman being passive, being aggressive, being passive aggressive, woman dismissing her own Responsibility, blaming men, women being defined against authority, women using words to put men down. I mean, the list could go on and on. It's just messy. That is, that is by our experience. And is there hope? Come back next week. I'm, I'm just going to... No. I need to land with Jesus. So I have to, I have to talk about the restoration. I need to, I need to land with hope. So let me, let me wrap up. Man and woman in restoration. There's a promise of God. Genesis 3:15. God says this. I will put enmity between you serpent and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He the woman's offspring, the seed of the woman, will bruise your serpent's head, and you, serpent, devil, shall bruise his heel. Basically, the promise is this. There will come a man from woman's body, a true head, a true leader, One who will not just take a primary responsibility for women, but the one who will take full responsibility not only for women but for men. He will work and keep and serve and guard and fight a good fight of faith, the fight battle head on with the devil, and he will win. He will crush the head of the serpent, and he is our hope. He will show you what it means to be the head. He will show you what it means to be leader. He will show you what it means to be responsible. He will show you what it means to be a human being. He will show you what it means to be men. And his name is Jesus, the second Adam. Jesus goes to the cross and he gets bruised in his heel, but he bruises the serpent by the head by taking full responsibility for the sins of humanity. He enters into the ring to fight the battle against the enemy, and he fights to death. And through his death, he conquers sin, death, and Satan. He is the man. Praise be to God. Jesus is the man. He is the head. He is the leader. He is the one who restores our broken relationship, our broken manhood and broken womanhood. So the pathway towards restoration is found nowhere else. Then Jesus, the restoration of biblical, sound, healthy, beautiful, good manhood and womanhood must begin with Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, men and women, come to Jesus. Let's pray. I know it's a little late, but I do want to give some time to pray. Specifically this morning, I want to give some time to pray for men first, and then for women. I want all men in this room to stand, please. Men, please stand. Every every man, young and old, every man. Brothers, it's not easy to be men it's not easy to be a good man it's not easy to be a godly man it's not easy to be the head you'd rather not be the head you feel like I was born in a wrong body but you know what God made you as men To be the head. To, again, not about male privilege here, to be responsible. So I want to invite you to pray a prayer to God, whether it's repentance or thanksgiving or commitment, as God invites us to act like men. Let's look to Jesus who shows us what it means to be men. And sisters, let's pray for men here. We're broken. We're sinful. We need your encouragement. We need your help. We need your prayer. So let's pray for men at this time. Father, forgive us. We come humbly this morning together with fellow men. Forgive us for failing to be the man that you created us to be, failing to be responsible before you first, not listening to you, not being responsible to follow you and your ways. Forgive us, O God. Father, forgive us for being irresponsible towards women. Instead of protecting them, we used God-given power. We misused it, we abused it. Father, forgive us. And Father, we, we pray for strength, for change of heart. Oh Father, we pray that they will. The reality of this church will be where, when young boy asks, what does it mean to be man? We'll be able to say, look at him, then you will know what it means to be man. Look at me, and I'll show you what it means to be man. Man willing to lay down his life for others. So Father, we we pray for that grace, oh God. We need your help. I invite you to stand, woman, at this time. Man, you can stand, stand up and let's pray for woman. We ask for your forgiveness on behalf of men who failed you as head of the household in multiple different ways we lament together with you, and we repent and we pray for God's mercy that God will beautify you, that God will strengthen you to be the helper that God has created you to be, to be, to be the encourager, to be the beautiful and wise woman that you are created to be. And if there's anything that you need to repent of in your own shortcoming, uh, we want to invite you to also pray that as well. So let's pray for woman at this time. And men, if you're sitting with your spouse, you can hold her hand or um, touch your spouse and just bless her and thank God for her. You can even ask for forgiveness at this time if you want to. But let's pray for a woman at this time. Father, we praise you that you bring beauty out of ashes, that you are God who restores us individually, as a family, as a church. And we want to especially lift up our singles and single moms, especially in our midst, that this will be a church where a beautiful manhood and womanhood experienced and where there needs to be help and we need lots of help, especially as singles. This church will be a place where men will show other men what it means to be men of God. And this place will be a place where women will also help each other and show younger women what it means to be godly women that this church will show how beautiful it is when brothers dwell in unity, when brothers and sisters dwell in unity, glorifying you as we are meant to as image bearers. Oh God, we pray for extra measure of grace, those who are suffering and aching. It may take a lot of time, but Father, may we be church where there will be healing and restoration as we journey together, as we grow together, as we look to you, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the perfect man who restores all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.